Welcome to The Noncast, an ongoing conversation around the topics of spirituality and culture for those who find themselves wondering and wandering on the fringe of religion. I'm Nathan Roberts. And I'm Stephen Drager. We're hoping to create a safe space for the rest of us to be honest. So this is for anyone, regardless of their faith background or life circumstance or current musings in regards to life and faith matters. And it's for all the nons out there. So the folks who no longer identify with any one stream of Christianity or may be questioning their commitment to a faith tradition altogether. For those deconstructing and reconstructing and for those who are finally being honest about their questions and feelings, we welcome you. In our last episode, we had talked a little bit about this concept. It actually had come up uh, a number of episodes ago as well. But we want to talk about this concept that we've introduced that before anything else, you're loved. And so to start, there's going to be a couple of passages in the Bible that we're looking at. So if you're not super familiar with the Bible, that's totally okay. I'm going to read these verses to you. And if the Bible makes you want to gag... um, if you would hang in there with us, because we think that what we're going to be talking about today is um, pretty transformational for our perspectives as we listen to the scriptures being taught and as we read them for ourselves. And to give you a little bit of an umbrella uh, picture of, of what we're going to be talking about t- today with this whole before anything else you're loved bit, it it's a response for me. Uh, it was a response to the types of messages I was hearing in a lot of sermons within um, the churches that I had grown up in and worked in. Namely, the part of the sermon when I would hear things like, um, you're deserving of wrath, or you're deserving of God's judgment, or you're deserving of hell. There's nothing good in you, and um, uh, and yet God loves you, or something like that. Because it, it was always spun positively, like, but look at how much God loves you. While you... And then, and then typically the verse while you were a sinner or an enemy of God, yet Christ died for you. And so there's this idea that's presented within a lot of churches that, um, before anything else, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. And there's a lot of verses that get used to try to communicate that. Um, and I think that that's missing, missing the mark quite a bit here. And so as we're talking about this concept of, of being loved, I think it's important that we also begin with, uh, an overview of the, the the functioning definition of love that I'm going to be using as I talk about this specifically. And some of this is adapted from a scholar named Scott McKnight, but I'm using love in this sense, that love is the positioning of one's heart towards another that offers a non-judgmental and non-anxious presence without condition. And it's the activity of being with, for, and working on behalf of, of the other person's good, their flourishing, and their purpose in the world. Love should make that other person more fully alive and more, more, more fully actuated as a human beings with all of their unique gifts and personhood attached. Um, and so love's not manipulative or coercive. Love uh, doesn't remove another person's ability to, to be. Uh, love is not... Uh, a pressure uh, or a weight of anxiety that we might put on another person. Um, And love is the experience. If you are the one being loved, it should be the experience of knowing that another person 
is with you, that they are for you, and that they're acting on behalf of your good. So I know that I like trash the church a lot and kind of trash Christianity sometimes. Um, but I think this is one of those moments where I'm hearing you explain this mm-hmm. and I'm going, yes, like that is why so many people find Christianity attractive and appealing yeah. is because I think when done well, um, this message is transformational and it is, um, you know, life giving. Um, and I think that even the churches who are doing a lot of things wrong, um, they're still offering this message of you are loved without condition and, and, and the purpose of God's love is, is so that you would flourish and, um, that you have a purpose in the world and that you're not alone and that you're not, um, you know, just absolute garbage and all this stuff. Um, but then we, you know, kind of tack on all of these other beliefs that seem to kind of subvert that main belief. But I just, I was hearing you explain Mm -hmm. this and I feel like a kind of a light bulb went on and I was like, Oh no, this is, this is what makes Christianity appealing. Totally. And, and, and especially I think part of what the, the power of the evangelical message has been as well is that within, and and how I started today's uh, podcast is that with, within the message or the narrative that we give people, we explain to them why they're bad, um, which we don't really need to be reminded of oftentimes because we already think poorly enough of ourselves, either because our family of origin or the people around us, or we just don't think that highly of ourselves, but, uh, maybe because we've seen our own failures. Um, but so we, I think that the evangelical message has been kind of potent in that sense where it reminds people of, where they've fallen short or how they're broken. So then this idea, this concept that, but that God would love you, it, it feels all the more compelling, I think. And I, cause I, I think a lot about the, the moments in my life where the message of God's love has, has really hit home. It's sunken really deep to yeah. my heart. And it, and it oftentimes is, is in the contrast of, um, uh, me being a dirty, rotten sinner, though. And and I feel like there should still be power in the message that says, well, before you even sinned, before you did anything that was uh, offensive to God or to anyone, God would still loved you. Like, and, and, and in fact, your sin never threatened that, that love that God has for you. Yeah, I, and I feel like that message gets covered over by your dirty rotten sinner or or at least like that message that you are loved that you were loved before you took your first breath that oftentimes gets overshadowed or um replaced by the idea that no 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 you were born and in, in what like christians call like sinful nature like you were born sinful and even though there are things that you have done that are terrible and and sinful, um, even if you hadn't done those things, like you had no control over the fact that you were born with a sinful nature. And really that's like, that's not the starting point. It shouldn't be the starting point. It it shouldn't be the starting point. And in fact, uh, that language of sinful nature, um, if my seminary studies, uh, if I'm remembering them correctly, 
I remember professor professors telling us the only reason why we even have that theology right now is because of the 1984 version of the NIV, which introduced the words sinful nature in the substitute of sarks or flesh. So the, the Greek word there is sarks and the transliteration of that is flesh. And then in the 1984 version of the NIV, that got retranslated from flesh to sinful nature because at the time theologians and scholars were trying to understand what does this word flesh mean and nowadays the word has actually been removed from the NIV um, so in the 2004 I think it was redone or somewhere in that time period and and it was removed from sinful nature was removed and replaced back with this idea of the flesh and the flesh then as scholars have tried to wrap their minds around that more and more, the flesh seems to be the life done apart from Christ, a life apart from 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 being uh, in Christ. And so, um, even that, it's it's really interesting and sad to me that that because of a mis misinterpretation or a mistranslation of the text, um, that then a, a not an entirely new theology because the idea of original sin has been around for a while, but there's this new idea, this new theology that's that's deeply ingrained in um, much of the much of the Western evangelical church, um, and we're not going to get into this idea of some um, uh, original sin today that much. But it's worth acknowledging that we know that this is a part of the conversation, and depending on the type of church that you grew up in, if you grew up in the church, you might have an understanding or a belief that you were born into sin um, because of Adam. Therefore you also like, like what Stephen was saying, you don't really have an option. You're just born into it. And uh, I want to let you know if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, yeah. What about that? Because that is the theology that I've been taught and grew up with. There are expressions of Christianity, um, the Catholics being one of them who don't hold to that doctrine. Yeah. So that is a Protestant doctrine. Uh, and that's not to say that it's wrong because not everything Protestant is wrong. Not everything, not, not everything of any one camp of Christianity is right or wrong. But, um, I just want to offer that as a reassurance to say, we're exploring, we're exploring concepts here that are well within the realm of Christianity. And, um, and there are certain doctrines that don't seem quite fully to align with what we see, uh, in the story of creation or um, the narrative of the scriptures that are trying to give us a revelation of, of who God is and man's understanding of God as that continues to progressively unfold. Yeah. And a quick little reminder. um, There are thousands of different denominations within Christianity itself. Um, And if that tells us anything, it's that, we all are pursuing the same thing and coming to different conclusions on different topics about that thing. And I think it's incredibly important. I think, I think we've touched on this before in our, probably in our what's wrong with the church podcast episode. Mm -hmm. Um, But if anything, we we need to remember um, that it's okay. And that I would even say it's not just okay, but it's beautiful to see that kind of diversity in, in thought and in perspective and in um, the way that we approach the divine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. Now we are going to be functioning out of a couple of different verses as we talk today. And so one of those is first John chapter four, specifically verse eight. I'll read in a second, 
The other passage, though, is going to be Genesis one twenty seven. And again, we touched on this a little bit in our last episode. So if you haven't heard that, we would encourage you to go back, listen to our episode uh, on Genesis, and um, then come back over to this one because some of the things that we talk about there and here will make more sense in context together. But First John 4, 8 says, whoever does not uh, does not love, does not know God because God is love. And and in John chapter four, this is one of those passages that very clearly spells out the nature of God and that God is love, that the, that the core of God's essence is love. And um, man, I, I, th- so there's different ideas within theology as well, that sometimes God is best known by saying what God is not. And sometimes God is best known by saying what God is. And this is one of the cases in which I'd say this is really helpful or has been really helpful for me. Um, there's, there are, uh, increasingly less things I feel comfortable hanging my hat on when it comes to Christianity, but God being love is absolutely one of those core essential, um, beliefs for me. I think that yeah, unapologetically, I think that God is love. And I think that if things don't, if our theology doesn't align with, with God and God's ability to be loving, then we might need to take a, take an opportunity to re-examine it. Yeah. And then even later on in this, I mean, just like two verses later, it says something that I think is super profound. Um, and that is this, it says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. And that, if anything else, or if, if not anything else, it tells me that um, even those who aren't comfortable saying, you know, I'm a Christian or I believe in Jesus or any, you know, any of our, you know, Christian doctrines or, or belief statements um, cannot, they cannot be discounted because this right here is kind of this i i can't help but read this and uh and, and read john kind of like kind of sarcastic not sarcastically but but kind of being a little facetious and being like yo none of you have ever seen god nobody has uh but you mm-hmm. can tell who has uh, by those who love well and mm-hmm. maybe the uh <laughs> the the cripple over there is is loving better than you are and and maybe that mm-hmm. prostitute um not in terms of physical <laughs> love <laughs> but she's, she's making the the love way better yeah yeah you yeah. know but but hey maybe the people that you've said are out um might be loving better than you are and i love i love uh years ago when rob bell was doing his numa videos um, he did this whole bit on, you know, like music and, and some people, you know, can, can hear the music and not really understand it. Um, others don't understand the music at all. Um, or, or at least like they don't understand what goes into the music, but they like are so attuned to it and, and can feel it and can dance to it and um, kind of relating the music to the divine and, and kind of trying to explain like, Hey, there, there are Christians who really have no idea who God is and what God is like. And then there are people who would probably, um, you know, like disown Christianity altogether, but are very in tune with who God is and what God is like and, and emulate that divine nature and uh 
purpose. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. I mean, I'm thinking back to the Gospels and thinking of examples where Jesus is basically saying, yeah, all you people who thought you had it, you don't. Yeah. It's it's the, like, Zacchaeus, though, the tax collector who's been ripping you off for 10, ten years. Like, yep, he's got it. <laughs> <laughs> he has a repentant heart. He sees he sees me for who I am. Um, yeah, and it's interesting, too, just on that note, like, people, people who don't claim to follow Jesus, that doesn't mean that they can't love. Um, uh, I used to, and this is totally off topic, I guess, for today, but... I mean, I, I used to think that if somebody wasn't a Christian, they couldn't fully love, they couldn't properly love. And I used this verse, this first John four, eight as the, as the idea behind it, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And I had inverted it, you know, I, cause that's not, the text does not say what I used to say it, that it meant. I used to say, see, you have to, uh, you have to know God in order to be able to love people. Um, and that's not at all what it says. It says, if you don't love, you don't know God because God is love. So if you're not familiar with love, love the, the essence of the being of love, then how is it that you're supposed to know God? So I've had it wrong. I think many people before me have had it wrong as well. But that type of um, of teaching, I think, can be pretty toxic. Yeah. Yeah. So whoever loves knows God. Whoever knows love knows God. So the people that are loving are doing it the best. And then I guess we have to, you know, well, what is love? And I think you brought up a, a great point when you said that love is, it's it's a positioning of your heart, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say it's probably also action. Love requires um, something to be done. Love isn't just something that is, it's something that does. Um, and so I think the whole like being non-judgmental and um, you know ha- providing a non-anxious presence, I think love has to be unconditional. Um, I don't think it can uh, require anything to exist or demand anything in return. I think love naturally, you know, works for others' goods and others' flourishing and others' purposes. I, I think that I would say that love is um, sacrificial. And so I think that's the kind of love that we need to find because it's not, you know, those who know romance, know God, it's those who right. know love. And it's, I think yeah. philosophically the the definition that, that you gave was, was good because it's not just, you know, um, what probably a lot of people would define as love is just, Oh, it's a feeling or it's a, right, right. you know, it's this romantic, no, no, no. Love is something that is, um, it's it's purpose and it's action and um and it's you know sacrifice and i and i think that that's why um i'm so comfortable saying that jesus is the incarnation of love Mm -hmm. because when we read the gospels um jesus is never judgmental i mean to all the people who you know the religious leaders that the pastors of the day were condemning jesus was comforting and um it's so ironic to me that you know we can very quickly draw lines in the sand right about who's in and who's out and we forget that the only lines that jesus ever drew in the sand were to uh protect the marginalized and the oppressed Mm -hmm. and um i just think it's it's fascinating that um, 
that not many people see Jesus as the embodiment of love and yet claim him to be their Lord and Savior. Hmm. Is that so? I think I think that it's this like people are drawn to Christianity initially because it feels good. It feels good to know that I'm loved and that I like all the guilt and shame that I've carried around for years, you know, suddenly can go poof, which it doesn't, but right, you know, right. but it, you know, but that all of a sudden I'm I'm feeling this, you know, euphoria um but then we forget that the love that we were given is the same love that we're called into. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because the starting point should be you are before anything else you're loved. And so yeah. um, as Christians, we have a term we call, you know, we are God's beloved. Um, but if you're beloved, then the next step is to, is to actually be loved, right? To accept the love. It, you're still loved re- regardless of whether or not you accept it, but accepting it kind of helps it take root and marinate inside of you. And and mm-hmm. that's where shame dissipates and that's where guilt leaves. Um, but then if we're just beloved, you know, creatures who have accepted the love and never be loved, then that I, th- I think that we don't mature and so I think that the I think that the love needs to also, or at least the, the love that we're called into, um, needs to be like put back out into the world. I mean, Genesis tells us that we're image bearers of God, and if you know John tells us that God is love, then we are made in the image of love. We're we're meant to be image bearers of love. Yeah, and and I'm glad you're bringing up Genesis because we didn't need to get to that one as well, just so that there's greater context. But you said some things that sparked some thoughts. So, okay, I want to go back to this idea of being love. Um, because I, I personally will hear things if I'm in church or if I'm listening to podcasts, if I'm told you're supposed to do X, then immediately the thing that comes up for me is I'm not guilt. Gonna, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> no, no, it's the inverse for me. Maybe that's you. <laughs> for me, it's the inverse. It's like, oh, I haven't been doing that or I haven't been doing it enough or I'm not doing it well or whatever. And there's all of this like, oh no, I failed at this thing. And and I want to acknowledge that that's how some people could hear that since that's how I can hear that oftentimes and maybe offer a reshaping of that whole idea. Um, Maybe it's not linear, like, cool, you, it's, it's not, uh, okay. It's not Christmas morning where you receive a gift and then you give one back necessarily. It's, uh, I'm wondering, could it be more of like, um, this is the natural outworking of one who is loved. Yes. It's positional positionally. You then become more loving. Um, and it's not something that you it's not something that you have to strive for. Maybe with some people, like there's a more of a conscious willing or decision to turn towards somebody. I don't want to, I don't want to eliminate that from the equation. I get that. But, but I'm wondering if even when, when we decide to act lovingly towards another person who maybe doesn't deserve it, is it possible that even that is simply the outworking of God's love being recognized in our own life, the embodiment of it, not in a shaming sense of, well, now I have to do this because you know, I'm supposed to, 
but, uh, or else if, and if I don't, I'm bad or I'm, I'm not holding up at my end of the deal. But yeah, what, what would it be for us to reposition this concept into it being more of, this is just the outworking of what it is to be loved. You also become more of it. Yes. I mean, I would even <laughs> to dismantle our entire argument here, <laughs> I, I would say probably both are true. I mean, the, the more you realize that you're loved, the more you kind of naturally exude love. Um, at the same time, if we're talking, you know, the X, Y, and Z things that are loving, um, type twos on the Enneagram, you know, I mean, at, at their best are exuding God's love and at their worst are doing great things for people and, and loving other people, uh, because they're codependent and they need to do that in order to feel valued. <laughs> so <laughs> bless the twos. Um, okay. Let's jump over to Genesis one then. Uh, this is Genesis one verse 27 says, so God created mankind in God's own image in the image of God. God created them male and female. God created them. So that's, that's uh, again, the basis of what some of this argument is we, in the very beginning, uh, were created in God's image. We talked a little bit about this last time about this being, uh, in contrast to, the other religions and their idols and their temples and how here in Genesis one, we're seeing this temple imagery and that instead of it being, uh, idols made of sticks and stones, it's idols that are actual human beings, the image bearers. Um, and, and so there's this unique calling on the life of, of humanity, which is to be, uh, to be one who bears God's image. Um, and, and this, this idea of Imago Dei is the image bearing. Imago Dei is, uh, can be translated like the mask or can be translated in, in an image of the divine. And so to be human is to be an image bearer. You are an image bearer regardless of your religious affiliations, regardless of, um, of your sexual orientation, um, regardless of uh, the color of your skin, you and, and we are all bearers of this image of God. And that is um, the, the great equalizer across all humanity. If we, as people who do follow Jesus, if we, if we want to begin to move more towards love, in fact, I would say it's, it's to offer dignity to other people by acknowledging that they too are a bearer of the divine image um, and that there is innate worth, innate value, and innate dignity that comes simply with being an image bearer. Now, there's a little bit of an anecdote that I've shared prior in another episode. I'm going to share it again for the sake of the conversation here. And uh, and so the, the story is if you were to ask um, a new parent, uh, and this is a good parent, okay? We know that there's parents, unfortunately, who who wouldn't be able to say the things that I'm going to suggest. But if you're talking to a good parent and they have a newborn child, if you were to ask that parent, has your child done anything to deserve your love? Uh, they would look at you like you're a little crazy because they would they probably would think to themselves, 
deserving has nothing to do with this. Deserving has nothing to do with whether or not I love my child. I love my child because it is of me and I am of it. We are, we are in that sense, like I, I am in my child and my child is a part of me. And how could I not, there's nothing to do with deserving love here. It is just, it's part of the essence. The essence of this child is that it is love because it's mine. And that's a good parent. A good human parent would be able to give an answer like that. If our parents in some way are supposed to be reflections of who God is or, or, uh, God figures for us to attach to as we're children. Um, and if, and if in some way the idea of family and of parent child relationships helps us to understand the divine more then to tease this out a little bit further, if that's a, if that's a good human parents response to that question, then how much more would God love? I mean, to what degree more would God be able to say, Oh no, this has nothing to do with does humanity deserve my love? I love humanity because I created humanity uh, and, and humanity, humanity has my image. It is a part of, of the divine image in the world and they have their being in me. So it's not a question of whether or not we deserve God. So to, to make the assertion that we don't deserve God's love to me is now pretty nonsensical because it would be like asking that parent, does your kid deserve your love? It, it, deserving has nothing to do with it. So again, for all the all the sermons that I've heard, all the pastors who have said at some point in their sermons uh, or in their books, um, that we don't deserve God's love and that grace is something that's given and it's undeserved. When it is said in conjunction with you don't deserve it because you've sinned, I think that that has nothing to do with the conversation. And I think that we're putting words in God's mouth that God did not say, that God does not believe. Um, I, I think that that from the very beginning, God has been loving creation and specifically humanity simply by virtue of the fact that we are from God and that we bear God's image. Yeah. I think the whole, like you're a dirty, rotten sinner or, you know, you have a sinful nature argument. uh, It's probably an attempt to just express this idea of that we need grace. And so I, for those of you who aren't, part of a Christian community. There's two terms that kind of get thrown around a lot. That's mercy and grace. Mercy is, you know, not receiving uh, something that you do deserve. So if you, you know, if you do something wrong, you deserve jail time. Mercy would be, you know, a judge would have mercy on you and and say, all right, you're not going to serve time. Grace is giving something that hasn't been earned. So, so, so mercy is withholding. Grace is giving, I think it's why we call it like graciously giving. Um, and so maybe maybe that argument is to kind of express that God gives um, despite deserving. But I think the argument has probably turned into uh, even though you don't deserve it instead of despite like like or, you know, because there's nothing that you need to do to earn it. If that makes right. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm advocating for, of course, is um, 
I, I, I wish that the word deserved or deserving that that didn't even have a place in the conversation. So what I'm advocating for is like, let's just get rid of that when we're talking about God's grace. Let's get rid of that when we're talking about God's love because deserving deservedness has nothing to do with it. Um, God, God is, is choosing to be gracious, uh, because God loves or God is loving because that's the essence of God's being. God, God cannot not be love. Um, you could say, or, uh, God can't simply by virtue of us being human. We can't not be loved by God either. Like that's, that's the other part of it. Um, I want to, I want to take it a little bit further as well. And, and I guess this is still in response to some of that message that you're talking about of dirty rotten center and you know, all, all that. I just want to say we, you to the listener, you aren't God's special project that has to be cleaned up before you're acceptable. I believe that simply by virtue of being created, you're loved uh, to have been created is to be loved. And so uh, I don't, I really don't think that God just sees you as well. Like it's not that the divine is bored and is looking for another woodworking project. And you happen to be the wood that that's being used. Like, no, you, it, God's not just bored and, and looking for somebody to clean up. Um, and I think that that's worth saying because a lot of the time I feel like the message that's being presented is, um, man, you're a huge mess and, uh, God's got a lot of work to do on you. It's going to take a lot of time because you're so effed up. And so, <laughs> so just get used to it being uncomfortable because, you know, God's got to get you ready for heaven. And, uh, and yeah, and, and no, <laughs> um, there's no cleaning up. There's, there's nothing to be done. I, I think about when Jesus heals lepers and, uh, one of the, one of the stories that I'm thinking of is from the book of Luke and this leper comes to Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can heal me. And Jesus says, I'm willing, you're clean. Go present yourself to the priests and tell them that you did all their correct ceremonial stuff, but don't tell them that I did this. And, uh, there's other reasons why he said that, but, um, I just love that Jesus doesn't make him go through the ceremonial cleansing rites in order to be presentable to him. And Jesus doesn't, uh, uh, he doesn't shy away from touching the man or from, from releasing healing on him. He's just, is like, no, I, you're loved. You're in like, welcome back to the assembly. Uh, so sorry that you weren't ever, that you weren't able to, uh, participate in it before. Um, so there's, there's that sense in which, you know, we see Jesus when he's dealing with people who are unclean, restoring their dignity by actually telling them a counter narrative to what they've been told, which is that they had to go do something to clean themselves up. And, and I think that's that that's part of the power that's, uh, that's in the whole Jesus story. And, and I, I mean, I was thinking about first uh, or John, John three sixteen and 17, and particularly the verse 17, where it says, um, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And how often that verse gets skipped as well. But to, for us to remember that, that it's not about uh, condemning the world, but it's about loving. It's about saving. It's about being, being sent not to clean up a mess, but to um, reveal to people the truth of their humanity and the fact that they're loved 
um, to restore their dignity, to come alongside the disempowered and the disenfranchised and to remind them of their worth, to go to the one who was on the outside of the camp and to say, no, you're actually welcomed in here, um, to invite people back in to communion with God. So it's hard because I am a, I think I wouldn't say firm, but I would say I'm a believer in, in grace. But now after kind of talking about love and love being unconditional, I'm, I'm wondering how much grace, although I would still say it's true of God, how much the need for grace has been a human construct um, and I mean that in the sense that the, the church never needs to shame anybody for anything that they've done because as humans, we already feel shameful. We already mm-hmm. feel guilt for the things that we do. Um, and so if, if we rewind thousands and thousands of years ago um, to when humans were beginning to tell each other stories about who they were and why they were here and who God is. Right. And, um, these are people groups who are not as, um, intellectually advanced as we are. Right. These are people who are thinking and operating in, in totally different intellectual systems than we are. Um, right. And you, and you come, you come to the conclusion that, um, that God has created us and that we are loved and that we are God's beloved, um, and you're also dealing with this issue of I've done things, and you know I'm feeling shameful, I'm feeling inadequate. Um, then, of course, the the need for God in His or in God's gracious love is, is or is to be grace filled, and is to offer things despite what you've done, and. So I'm, I'm wondering if this idea of grace is really, although it's still true of God because it's true in the nature of love, in the sense that deservedness is not a factor, um, in our making it a factor, grace became a tenant of our faith because we're dealing with this shame and guilt thing that we just can't get away from. And so the answer to that is God offers us grace. And again, while that is true and because it was you know, part of God's love where deservedness is not a factor. We have now opened the door to all these other kind of weird and wonky beliefs. So I'm, I'm wondering if, if the idea of grace while true is more of a, a human, like a product of human thinking over time. Just to make sure I'm tracking with you would, uh, so, Okay. Is is grace then God's response to the human construct, or is uh, or is grace just potentially a made up idea to respond to the feelings of being bad? I would say both. I think again, I think grace is. I think it could be because of I think my personal theological beliefs. Um, I think that. With all of the evidence of humanity progressing and growing uh, ethically, morally, intellectually, um, you know, even industry-wise, I mean, in, in all of these things, I would say that God has always 
and will always meet us where we're at and that the Bible is a reflection of that. Um, and so I, I, I would probably say that grace existed before we understood it because it was just love. <laughs> um, but it has kind of been whittled down to grace in response to what we've believed. So I, I, I would say that it's probably both. It's, it's an idea that we've made up, um, but that kind of already existed in love. And it's also, and it could also probably be God's response to our, it's hard to say God's response sometimes because we can't speak for God. And, and, and really we can only speak into our understanding of God. And so every time that I say, you know, like a, like something about God that God thought or chose to do this for, Right. Some reason. It's really, yeah. uh, we're really not, we're not talking about God. We're talking about our understanding of God. Right. And, and our perception. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to throw another wrench in here too. I love wrenches. Because uh, they're super fun tools. Um, when it comes to the definition, the functioning definition of grace that many people operate under, that grace is unmerited favor. Yeah. I would just say that as love. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, sure. And well, and, and then where it gets a little bit even more complicated is that um, I, I think that there's probably like three uses of grace throughout the scriptures and each one needs to really be read in its proper context. And so I just did a very quick search in Bible Gateway on the word grace. Okay. Like I'm not exegeting any text or anything like that. I'm just looking at it on on the surface by the way this is not a sponsor for bible gateway it is not they have their own sponsors though i can see that there's lots of ads on the page and while i want to shame you nathan for using bible gateway i am also currently using it for a biblical text (laughs) (laughs) not topical but (laughs) so we see many instances of grace uh one of them Proverbs 5, 19, a loving doe, a graceful deer. And then so-and-so. Uh, Proverbs 22, 11, one who loves a pure heart and who speaks with grace will have the king for a friend. Oh, Song of Songs. Let's get into this. Yes. Juicy. We, we're going to... By the a, way, uh, by the way, for those of you that, that don't know, are you talking about Song of Solomon, right? Yes, or songs. Yes, but yes. Song yes. of Solomon's is the um, biblical porn. It, yeah, it's. I was gonna say it's the uh, what is the gray? Oh, I'm totally. What's that? What's the name of that trilogy book? Trilogy with the movies? Something about oh, the, Fifty Shades of Gray. <laughs> it is the Fifty Shades of Gray of the Bible. Yes, for sure. Now, Absolutely. So, so we're gonna have to put an explicit on this one now um this episode because this no, is I'm straight kidding. from scripture <laughs> uh this but it's about grace so uh how beautiful your sandaled feet oh prince's daughter your graceful legs are like jewels the work of an artist's hands so it's not it's not very scandalous but graceful legs okay and then and then you see grace in uh, a favor kind of sense so isaiah 26 10 but when grace or favor is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness, even in a land of uprightness. They go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. Okay. 
By the way, that is then, that is a proverb, which means it is wisdom. Yes. So it is something that is learned. And so everybody has probably experienced this where, you know, you do the right thing and you turn the other cheek or you, you know, you show patience or somebody to or something to, to somebody who like totally just ignores it and still does the exact opposite of what you were hoping that would accomplish. Um, and that's, I think... We need to be careful because that is all that this proverb is explaining. It's this is this is the way of the world. Those who are kind of stupid and wicked and will do whatever they want will continue to do whatever they want despite your efforts. Yep. So then we also see grace in uh, in a few other senses. So, First um, Corinthians one three, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, First uh, Corinthians three by the grace God has given me, uh, and so on. Um, uh, I know that there's a section I'm looking for the section that talks about grace gifts when it talks about spiritual gifts. Um, but to get back to the point of there being seemingly three different types of grace that's talked about, well, yes, sometimes this idea of unmerited favor fits. Sometimes it's talking about like movement um, to be graceful to to move with ease and with poise and to with beauty. Um, and then there's this grace that also seems to be uh, really the presence of the spirit or the presence of God and, and, and something, a situation on a person's life. And so I think that contextually we really need to be careful too with when we're talking about something like grace, um, which kind of grace is being applied here at the very beginning, we tried to, define what what are we talking about when we say love and i love that you had brought up here i go saying i loved uh i appreciated that you brought up the whole idea that we're not talking about romance here we're not talking about um like the we're not we're also not talking about the love of like pizza right we're talking about this um this essence this being with and for and towards and working on behalf of another and being present and 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 non-judgmental and non-anxious and and unconditional uh, towards another. And so, um, that's my wrench is I think that there's multiple ways of talking about grace and, and when it comes to the way that we then intertwine grace and love and the way that we try to understand, especially when we hear pastors or we read pastors saying that you were undeserving of God's grace. Again, I want to push back and challenge that perspective and say, perhaps it has nothing to do with, are you good enough to deserve something? Perhaps it has everything to do rather with like, no, you just, you simply, you simply are loved. You simply receive grace. It's not, it's not a matter of deserving or undeserving. It's a matter of being and that simply by virtue of being, being one who was created, being one who bears the image of God, these things are yours. So that's where I think I would uh, land land the ship if I were to um, to pick a spot. It would be to to emphasize uh, this is this is yours because God gave it to you because before you did anything and before anything else, this is the state of your being. Um, now I know we're uh, we're we're going to be wrapping up here in just a moment, but. Stephen, are there any 
any examples of relationships in your life, people that, um, yeah, people that, people that maybe that you've pastored, people that you've been in and friends, friendships with or whatever, who have per, particularly needed this reminder, um, that before anything else they're loved. Are there any examples? I, I mean, I, I have, I have one. Yeah. But I want to see if you've got some stories that you could just to make this a little bit more concrete, because this is kind of ethereal. You know, we're talking about some existential stuff, but if we were to ground it a little bit more. Yeah. So I have a a friend uh, who is trans and Christian. And so the tough thing for him is he doesn't feel welcomed in the Christian community, but he also doesn't feel welcomed in the trans community because he's Christian. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that there's probably a lot of, at least from what I've heard in our conversations, there's a lot of um, discomfort and and tension and, and stuff. Um, And I have, I think done a, I've attempted and tried to remind him that the Bible is way more his story than it is of, you know, the evangelical white Christian who's basically just been handed this faith from their parents. Um, and that he is probably in a position to understand better what the Bible has to offer because Mm -hmm. he's in the camp of, you know, Hey, you're out and the rest of us are in. Um, and I think that that's who the scriptures are for. It's not for all of us who are saying that we're in and others are out. It's it's for all the people who have been told you're out, you know, you're, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You don't deserve anything, um, but God's wrath and judgment and, you know, you won't be in heaven and, and all that kind of bullshit. Um, I don't think that that's the Christian message. I don't think that's the message of Jesus. I don't think that's what God intended and had in mind when he created humanity. Um, yeah. 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 I think that to base, uh, to base our being, our existence and our decisions off of a position that says, uh, I need to be more compliant or I need to shape up because if I don't, there's some sort of doom, destruction, and wrath waiting for me. I think is actually a really toxic way to live because the constant state there's gonna there's gonna be a low level anxiety that just resides throughout life if that's our mode of operating. But if we're able to step more into a place of no, 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 I get to do these things. I part of what propels me and compels me to be more loving is the fact that I before I even was deserving or undeserving of love, I'm just loved because it's the essence of my being. I think that the more we embrace that, the more that we will understand then uh, that that is also the opportunity, the call in our life, the thing that we get to offer to other people as well is that we get to we get to show up in the same ways that the divine has showed up in our own lives. And we get to be that and the embodiment of love then for other people. Um, in other words, the incarnation of love. If If Christ is in me, then I ought to be an incarnation of of love and and again to return to our our definition that we're working with today my my point or my calling then on my life would be to become an embodiment of Christ uh Christ like love that offers a non-judgmental and non-anxious presence that doesn't have conditionality um that 
is also actively working for the um, for the better of somebody else for their for their good for their flourishing um, to hopefully hopefully stand next to them and by them and help them to feel more alive and more fully who they are um, as an image bearer as one who is created to to mirror the divine themselves and to the church I actually truly believe that if we can all begin to move more towards an embrace of this. Um, that we would be, um, we would do a better job of fulfilling our calling and our role here on the earth, to to be like Jesus to one another and to the people around us, to become love. Yeah, and so if you're listening today, uh, we want you to know that again, before anything else, you not were, you are loved, um, yeah. and that if there's any guilt or shame that you felt. Um, from Christians or the church, I would say that that is not from God. I would say that that no shame or, or guilt is from God. Um, but if you are also not identifying as Christian and yet are loving others without condition, if if you feel that the position of your heart um, is for the the betterment of those around you and your neighbors. Um, I think that Nathan and I would both say that you probably know God better than most Christians do. And we want to thank you for being an advocate of love and a, uh, a bearer of the divine as well. Yeah. And so with that, um, we would love for you to continue to help us spread the news about this podcast. Uh, some good ways to do that is to share this by either texting it to a friend or putting it on your social media. You can follow us uh, on Instagram at the Noncast. That's T H E N O N C A S T, and DM us, interact with us over there. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, whether this was helpful or challenging, or maybe a mixture of the two. We're so grateful to be able to be a part of your story and your journey and your process. Um, And so we thank you for choosing to spend your time listening in and letting us be a presence um, in your life as well. And with all that, our brothers and sisters, would you go this week in grace and peace.